This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. So hello, I'm Claire Williams, a Research and Development Officer for Research in Practice, and I manage our case law and legal summary publications for the adult side. I'm also here with my colleague, Lucianne. Hello, I'm Lucianne Blake. I'm also a Research and Development Officer at Research in Practice, and I manage case law and legal summaries for the children and family side. We're here today um, to have a conversation about using case law in practice and we have with us uh, Laura Pritchard-Jones and Tony Anyegbu. So Laura and Tony, would you like to briefly introduce yourselves and let us know a bit about your backgrounds and your experiences with case law? So this is Tony Anyegbu. Um, I am currently a, a manager for adults and service and I'm also the MCA lead. Um, I'm also um, an approved mental health professional and a best interest assessor. Um, that's the experience I've had in so many years. Obviously, I'm more involved in kind of leading and management now, but I'm also kind of um, actively, actively involved um, in approved mental health professional practice and best interest assessments. Um, I've worked in the field of um, mental health and mental capacity in many years. Um, and my interest in case law um, I mean, whether or not I have an interest or not, really, it's just that the nature of the job we do is um, underpinned by legislation, by case law, it's ever evolving. So um, really, um, you have to keep up with what's happening to be able to kind of influence decision making, you know, in your practice. So um, for me, and also being a manager, um, I have some kind of an additional responsibility to know where things stand, you know, so that if you're signing off assessments, you know, you're a bit more confident in effectively signing off your returning assessment. You have some kind of some um, some some grounding as the rationale for making any decision, really. So that's uh, my 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 role and my interest in case law. And I hope, you know, I'll be able to share my experience today really with everyone. Great, thank you, Tony. Laura? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Laura Pritchard-Jones. I'm a senior lecturer in law at Keele University um, and I also do um, quite a bit of work, independent work um, in terms of training and research. Predominantly, so my background predominantly is um, with the research specifically in things like mental capacity law and mental health law. Um, But generally speaking, um, more of an interest also in um, adult social care law. Um, so, you know, things like the Care Act and, and, and that type of legislation. Uh, I also co-draft the um, adults case law legal summaries every month as well. Um, so I suppose my interest in case law in particular derives just from the fact that I'm a lawyer um, by background, by training, um, not a practicing lawyer, an academic lawyer. Um, and it re- it's really sort of the bread and butter of what I do on a daily basis. So, you know, a big part of my role in order to be an effective um, academic, in order to be an effective researcher and an effective teacher is keeping up to date with that case law. Um, so, and I'm sure that's part of the conversation that, that we'll go into a bit later on. So, yeah, it's it's my bread and butter. Being interested in case law and particularly in this area is really, you know, I couldn't do my job without it. What is case law um, and why is it important for social care practice um, and why is it important to understand it and keep up to date with it? So uh, Tony mentioned, obviously, when when he was explaining in particular um, his interest in um, 
case law that actually for most social care professionals um their jobs rely on and the underpinnings to their job is is around um is the legislation basically in any particular area um so for best interests in particular assessors in particular like you said tony um you know the mental capacity act is the underpinning there of, of what you do as best interest assessor as an approved mental health professional the mental health act is the underpinning of what you do um similarly for social workers many social workers the care act will be you know really really crucially important um and also for those from from families perspectives you know things like the children act that's also going to be um in, incredibly important for them it's it, it underpins what they do when their obligations it spells out that their legal obligations and i suppose case law is really important because <clears throat> case law provides guidance in many ways on how to interpret and how to apply um, various sections of those pieces of legislation. So it, it, it enables practitioners to do their jobs in basically the most up-to-date way because case law is what what tells them what that interpretation of that piece of legislation should be basically that's effectively what it is it's it's you know in terms of technical terms case law is um it's a case that's been heard before the courts either a factual case in the court of protection for example determining what should be done for a particular individual or whether they lack capacity um or it's interpretation of a piece of legislation and it's a case that's been heard on that matter and it's a series of judgments or it's one judgment being handed down by a court um that determines that particular issue so on a technical level that's what a piece of case law is but obviously there it's you can see why it's so important for social care practitioners um, to be aware of that because it also impacts what they do the, the nature of the job for practitioners uh, both in health social care and also in health is that sometimes you could end up with different interpretation of what you believe is actually the right thing to do if you take in the field where I manage, you know, best interest. Um, the whole concept of best interest to an extent, there is a subjective element to best interest, even though it's meant to be objective. But there are times when you end up in situations where someone might deem the same decision, go might decide, I don't believe this is in the best interest of the person, and you end up with somebody else who undertake the same assessment as well and comes out in the other way around. So they are, they are, when you end up with kind of a potential conflicts in, you know, decision making, what case law allows us to do that, you know, we're able to take such matters before the court and the court can actually bring an additional clarity, you know, for practitioners. So what it then allows practitioners to then do is that, you know, next time people are then able to kind of refer to that case, you know, and put aside their own subjective view and just say, you know, even though, you know, A, B, C, D would have wanted this to happen, based on the last case, you know, we think we're, we're safe to, you know, to effectively decide in one way or the other. So for really for practitioners, it brings in additional clarity, especially in potentially complex, you know, um, cases. I think a really good example as well that almost all practitioners would be be aware of, um, you know, whether you come from an adults or a family's background in terms of practice from a, as a social worker. If you think of sort of one of the biggest key cases or pieces of case law that's happened probably in the last 10 years, certainly around the Mental Capacity Act, um, we think of the Cheshire West case, yeah. don't we? Um, and, and that was basically a, a case that um, interpreted or pro- provided an interpretation, a legal interpretation of what the concept of deprivation 
patient liberty meant, because obviously that then has a knock on effect as to who has to go through the deprivation liberty safeguards processes. Um, so that's a really good example of a piece of case law and the impact that it then has on practice, because practitioners now, and as you'll know, Tony, obviously being a BIA, have to be aware of what a deprivation liberty is now, according to what the Supreme Court said into Cheshire West case, you know, that, that acid test. Um, and so that's a really concrete example of a piece of case law that actually for practitioners is really, really important to know and to apply because it dictates their practice. It dictates who has to now be considered possibly deprived of the liberty and, and go through the best interest assessment process. Thanks both for outlining some really key reasons why it's so important. The next question um, kind of leads on to that, which is what are some common barriers or challenges that practitioners might face in applying case law to the decisions they're making to their practice? First, I guess for, for practitioners, first and foremost, will actually be keeping up really with case law would be the first, you know, kind of, kind of massive really, because um, like I said, case law kind of ever ever changing, you know, um, you could end up with um, uh, a decision of the court today, you know, that could be challenged in, in a few months time. And you're, you're here applying one decision and potentially, you know, um, within a few months, what you thought was actually, you know, supposed to be, you know, the legal position has changed, really. Um, and so it's kind of important. I mean, a typical example would be the case of, you know, um, whether or not you apply someone with a community dose and whether or not you can potentially use community dose and dose together. These cases have gone before the courts, you know, one decision decided yes, you could, the other decision decided no, and we've ended up in a, a you know, a situation where we think, you know, is acceptable, you know. So um, if you don't keep up with what's happening, you could potentially really, you know, um, make a flawed decision. Um, so that would be a, a barrier. Um, the other one, of course, that you're dealing with humans here. So, I mean, at the end of the day, um, that there are certain caveats also with certain cases because, you know, some of these decisions have to be put in context as well. Then you can never completely apply a specific, you know, um, a typical example would be a case of a best interest case. Um, we're aware of a case um, many years ago about a man, um, I think it's called Y Valley NHS Trust v, um, VB. And this is the case of um, clinicians wanting to actually amputate the leg um, of a man who was deemed to lack capacity and who, if that intervention were not to be provided, would probably die. And if you look at clinical best interest decision, that would have been a given because, you know, you can look at the risk, you know, see that we do this or you die. And of course, knowing that, you know, duty of care applies, that would have been a given. But because there was a strong objection on the part of um, this man, the case had to go to court. And surprisingly for um, all those who were involved in the case, the judge, after looking at the case, decided, you know, to not agree with the intervention on the basis that, you know, um, even if you lack capacity to make a certain decision, you know, um, your wishes, you know, and feelings should be given weight, you know, um, what you want to happen to you, irrespective. But what happens, of course, with clinicians that, you know, I mean, not everyone, but you, you sometimes hear clinicians saying, oh, they lack capacity. If you're dealing with an older person with dementia or LD, you know, they quickly sometimes justify their intervention with the answer, they lack capacity, almost assuming that the person who lacks capacity hasn't got a say in what you're doing for them. So what that case actually, you know, um, did was shake, you know, best interest decision-making for everyone. That you say, hang on a minute. We accept that, you know, um, this man lacks capacity, but what we cannot accept is that you completely 
overlook, you know, um, what he wants to happen to him because he's entitled to his wishes and feelings, and you've got to give that weight. So that um, was surprising. But what he then did, you know, for professionals involved in mental capacity and best interest decision is that, you know, each time you are then having to make those decisions, you've got to be careful to make sure that you give weight to the wishes and feelings. But then, you know, the law did not say you always have to, you know, decide your, your your decision doesn't always have to be aligned with the wishes and feelings of the service user. What it said is that you've got to give it weight. So if you don't interpret that properly, you could potentially end up making very potentially negligent decision because you're erring on the side of wishes and feelings. So you can then see how potentially tricky that because we've also had many other cases that have gone to court where the courts have gone against the wishes and feelings of service users. Um, so really, so that's the, the difficulty sometimes is um, if you don't keep up with the vast area of you know, case law that's out there and also understand the commentary within case law um, that clearly, you know, effectively puts that in context, you could potentially use a particular case law and apply it wrongly to your own case. So that's a big challenge, really, probably the most difficult challenge for professionals, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd agree with that, definitely. Um, and I think also case law as a sort of um, a thing can be quite complicated to navigate as well, in particular, if you're not legally trained as a, as a professional. So, you know, some of the cases can be quite dense and, and they're dealing with really quite in-depth legal issues. Yeah. You know, a really good example of that, a recent example of that is um, a local authority in JB, um, which came to the Supreme Court last year and was basically about what how do we interpret Section 3 of the Mental Capacity Act when we're talking about capacity assessments for a person as to whether they can um, have the capacity to decide to engage in um, sexual relationships? You know, and there were some quite dense legal points in there. So navigating some of those legal points can be quite tricky. Um, and, I, I, you know, I remember even for me as, a, as an undergraduate, one of the first things that my personal tutor said to me when I started my law degree was learning about law and particularly case law is like learning a different language. So I think, you know, that there's just the practicalities as well of actually getting your head round what the judges are saying in any particular case, and particularly if it's quite a, you know, a complicated legal issue in there. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that, that you know, helping practitioners to, to understand case law, it's very much about breaking it down as to, you know, what are the key points and what are the key implications for, for um, practitioners from particular cases. Yeah, I think the difficulty with, with professionals, of course, yeah, I think the breaking down part is kind of key, really, because we case law, as we know, kind of lengthy, really, you know, um, there are commentaries sometimes, I mean, depending on, you know, the resource you have, you might have some very good legal resource where they kind of um, um, give you a nice commentary, maybe in a one A4 page, but by and large, case law is really, really detailed and really professionals with all that they have to deal with, you know, these days don't really have the time, you know, to kind of look. So what they tend to do is kind of look at the headline, really, you know, looking at the headline potentially, you know, um, yeah, depending on how you look at that, it's really, you know, it's very tricky, you know, just looking at the headline, as we know, it's not a good way of kind of, you know, um, improving your practice. So, you, yeah, so anything that breaks it down for them really would you, would be helpful. And I really also kind of um, states clearly that, you know, this has got to be seen within its own context. And this is really, you know, what happened there that you can never really com completely complete, especially in the field of MC and best interest, you know, it's kind of very, you know, um, case specific, really. 
Yeah, and one last thing I think that's come to my mind in terms of some of the barriers and challenges to, for for um, case law is that in reality, case law, if a, you know, a particular case is handed down, can sometimes think make things harder or harder to understand as well. You know, so I think Tony, you mentioned the case around, um, you know, cases around community dolls, for example. You know, it's not provided a solution. It's just provided a little bit almost like a, of, a, of an ad hoc fix, um, a temporary fix. Uh, but also, you know, going back to Cheshire West, that made things harder generally for a lot of practitioners and a lot of local authorities because it basically lowered the threshold as to what deprivation of liberty was. So that meant that loads more people might come under this process, you know, might have to be assessed for the depri- under the deprivation of liberty safeguards. So case law can actually sometimes not clarify things. It can actually go the opposite way and it can make things maybe harder to understand or it can make things more difficult. Yeah, you're spot on exactly. I think that would have, that, yeah, that would have been my final point, which, um, I get, like I said, because it's also sometimes ever-evolving, you also have the right of appeal. Um, unless you keep up with a particular case, you know, consistently, um, yeah, it, it's really difficult to show where it's one, you know, cases around, you know, ordinary residents, you know, it's one, you know, at what point do you agree, you know, responsibility for someone, you know, um, today you might think, you know, the placing authority is responsible, you know, tomorrow you might think, you know, where the body is, you know, so this is really ever evolving on some of the to and fro in disputes we have, you know, between local authorities always around, you know, your understanding of case law, you know, versus someone else's understanding of case law. Um, so, yeah, it kind of keeps you almost thinking that you want, I mean, we have a very good system, really. The appeal system is good. But you can imagine if you had a system that was very clear right from the beginning that everybody accepts, you know, that would have made things a lot more clearer. Obviously, we're not advocating for that. But because of the right of appeal, you know, that means that, you know, um, decisions, unless it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court, you know, if it hasn't gone all the way to the Supreme Court and there is a right of appeal, then you can see potentially um, a different outcome to what you believe should be the case. And of course, the other one, of course, is around knowing fully well that we're also dealing with human fear. So sometimes, um, how does particular case law, you know, affect what you think should happen to someone, for instance, you know, as a professional, you might have a view, you know, that this is a particular intervention that should, you know, really be provided for this person, you know. Um, but if, if a particular case is kind of decided that this is what should happen, you know, how do you then square that? You know, have you got enough legal justification? And that could also be the other way around here, you know. So we have to kind of weigh case law, you know, against evidence-based practice, even if again, you knowing fully whether you're having to deal with human beings, you, um, you can't consistently be telling them, I can't do this for you because of case law. You've got to find a way to be able to kind of decide on a particular intervention, knowing fully well that, you know, you are dealing with people, you know, with their own difficulty, you know, with their own problems, you know. So, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it provides a lot of solution, but it also provides, you know, a lot of headache for professionals as well. And let's not forget as well that, you know, it, it's a social care is an area how many legal changes have there been over the last 10 years as well so you know it, it's that that's such it's it's such a we've got a running joke in sort of the legal academic world that actually you know if if you want an easier life go and research land law because that hasn't changed since the 1920s but you know if you think about this area of law social care law both adults and children areas of law you know we've had huge legal changes we've had the care act we've had you know changes to the mental capacity act we've had the insertion of the deprivation of liberty safeguards in in 2007 
now we've potentially got the liberty protection safeguards coming in as well. You know, naturally, this is just a really it's an area where you need to basically your full time job yeah. could be keeping up to date with case law. Um, so it, it's if you don't if you've got a million one of the things to do as part of your job as well, as you do if you work in social work, for example, um, you know, it, it, it's it's just so hard to navigate yeah. the, the, the tons of case law coming out of the courts. Absolutely. Um, well, you've already given us lots of <laughs> practice examples already. So that was my next question. If you if you had any more examples of where case law was used to influence practice and thinking, I suppose, more specifically, what the benefits were to that. Have you got any, any examples of that you can share? So I think just um, because I mentioned it, the JB case. So um, again, very, very briefly, the JB case was about what information does someone have to show that they understand um, around capacity and engaging in sexual relationships? And the particular point of the case was to decide, does the person have to show that they understand that the other person must consent, basically? Um, that was only handed down in December last year. So it's a relatively recent case. It's been going through the courts for a, for a while, but the, the final determination by the Supreme Court was handed down last December. Um, and the court held that they did, basically. So part of that relevant information that you're assessing, if you're undertaking a capacity assessment uh, around a person's ability to, to decide to engage in sexual relationships, is you have to assess their understanding of um, the other person's, the fact that the other person has to consent. Um, and so what that I think has done for a lot of practitioners that, that I've worked with, that so kind of example, not obviously being a practitioner from social care myself, but conversations that I've had when I've been training and teaching around that case, is that it's provided a much more concrete steer for practitioners to be able to go into a capacity assessment with that information and the ways of also now knowing now that they have to look at a person's understanding of the, the other person's right to consent and that the other person has to consent that they can go in much more equipped to that capacity assessment, knowing the types of conversations that they're basically going to be having. Because a capacity assessment is effectively a conversation with someone, isn't it? It's an in-depth conversation about their ability to make a decision about something. Um, so that's clarified one particular aspect of what that conversation has to be. But also in knowing that, a person, a practitioner, can go in with lots of different tools and methods to try and explore the notion of consent with a person. Um, and, and I think that's one really good example recently of the way that a piece of case law has um, had a good outcome in practice because practitioners feel much more clear, but also they feel prepared because they know, right, I know now that I'm going to have to have conversations around consent with this person. So uh, consent in sexual relationships. So <clears throat> how can I um, go through looking at some of the tools that they use in sexual education, for example, around consent? Um, so I think that's one example that springs to mind immediately for me. Yeah. And I guess if we go back to the case I mentioned, why Valley NHS Trust VB, I think what that actually did, you know, was um, effectively, you know, provide some kind of ammunition to staff, you know, professionals who um, probably had that kind of mindset before anyway, who were not, you know, um, your kind that would, you know, I mean, right off in quotes here, right off anyone who lacked capacity. And because what this case effectively did is effect, um, say, irrespective of the status of capacity, you've got to apply the same principle, you know, as to what does the person want to happen to them? 
you know, you've got to, and if you're going to then deviate from that, you've got to provide justification. So it's no longer a case of the lack capacity, you know, in that case, whatever they say, you know, um, it's no longer relevant. I make the decision or me as a professional, I know best, you know, what should happen to them. Um, what the court has actually said is that, you know, we accept that, you know, but at the end of the day, if you're going to decide against what they want to happen to them, you've got to actually provide strong backing. So in most of the capacity assessments now, you would see that professionals, you know, whether in the world of best interest assessment for those, or generally speaking, just normal day-to-day -day capacity assessment, people are now expected to find out what does the person want to happen to them. You both kind of touched on this already in terms of the interpretation and the application of case law. Um, so we, the, my next question leading on from that is what are your perspectives on how to balance case law alongside other sources of information like research, practice expertise or lived experience um, when working in direct practice? So I think the only thing that I'd offer from a sort of a technical perspective with my legal hat on is that case law is more binding um, mm -hmm. than that stuff. So in terms of for practitioners, you know, Tony's mentioned the AJ case, that's now legally binding. So actually that has to be not, not necessarily at the forefront, but that has to be implemented in practice. Practitioners, BIAs, um, you know, when they're thinking about RPRs, who to appoint as representatives, this has to be followed, basically. Um, so the, the the kind of the weight or the role that case law plays is slightly different, I think, to the role of of the other types of things. It's not it's not it's not more important or less important. It's just that practitioners have to know about certain cases in particular, um, and they have to be followed. Because as Tony mentioned, I think earlier on in the conversation, <clears throat> if that's not done, then they're leaving themselves potentially open to legal challenges. Um, but I think in terms of more broadly balancing it, I think what Tony's done so far is we've done a really good job of explaining that it can be really difficult to navigate because, and it's a term that you keep using, which is really, really good. Uh, you know, you, you're working with humans. You know, if you're working in this particular area, you're working with humans. And so, you know, I have the advantage as a lawyer. I can just think, oh, what does the case law say? That's great. I can just get my head around the case law. But practitioners have to do that while they're balancing a million and one other things and navigating a really complex or difficult set of circumstances or a really messy situation um, that they've got as part of their caseload. Um, so I think it, it can be a challenge to navigate the facts of a particular case, but also all the facts of a particular situation, um, while also being aware of that case law. And also having that obligation to think about, well, you know, how do we use research in this? What does research tell us about, um, you know, the, the way that we approach a solution to a particular situation? Um, but for, for me, in terms of case law, that has to be um, quite central in terms of the obligations and practitioners understanding their obligations. Yeah, no, spot on, Laura. I think, um, yeah, I think... You don't really have much leeway, obviously, unless, you know, like like I said, I mean, in the area of MCA best interest, yes, of course, you know, um, there's always a context to decision. So um, you have to apply the human side of things when you're dealing with a case. Uh, and because we're dealing with capacity, you know, decision time specific, really, you've got leeway to effectively look at that individual situation and apply what you see there with obviously with reference to case law to be able to kind of justify. But at the end of the in definitely in the field of MCM, you know, and best interest, you know, you are allowed to look at that specific situation of the case and make a decision for what you believe is right for that person. So long as you're not acting outside of the parameters of the law, you know, that allows you. Uh, but 
evidence-based on case law for me, I think, are quite aligned, really, because what, um, in most of the cases, really, what um, the judges tend to do is effectively, you know, look at evidence, you know, they normally call for evidence. And in majority of the cases, you normally see it's kind of almost like them actually rubber stamping a decision based on, you know, clinical evidence, for instance, say, um, I can give an example, for instance, um, we, 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 there is a, um, a case that we know around um, covert medication, um, AG, um, VB, and BC. Uh, what that case has done for us, I mean, before this case, I mean, if you went in and did um, your standard dose assessment, you look at the circumstances of the case, you know, if the criteria was met, you know, you would, you know, recommend that those is authorized and then that would be authorized without specifically teasing out, you know, you know, elements of restrictions. Um, and without necessarily even seeing covert medication as a restriction. What the courts have actually done is that actually um, almost shine a light on covert medication and actually said, if you're undertaking an assessment, you know, um, within a dose, you know, or generally, but definitely if you're looking at those and someone, because what you're meant to do within a dose process, you're meant to look at the individual restrictions, isn't it? The totality of those restrictions potentially, you know, lead to a deprivation of liberty. But you're also meant to be looking at them, you know, individually to kind of find out, you know, best interest justification for all of those, whether or not due process has been followed. So covert medication was highlighted in this case as a restriction that wasn't necessarily picked up because what happens to the BI is that it is when you've actually seen evidence for why restriction has been applied that you can then go and actually say, having looked at the totality of the restrictions, the support care, the support package, you know, I am satisfied it is in the person's best interest to be deprived of their liberty. But if you haven't seen, or if you haven't commented on all the restrictions, we're not quite sure exactly whether or not your decision would have been the same had you seen them. And if it's not written, there's no way for the person reading it to actually be sure that you've actually noticed that, for instance, this person has actually been pinned down and injected maybe three times a day. You know, I'm using that as an example. You know, you could have a situation where someone has to be restrained, you know, three or four times a day, you know, potentially in their best interest, you know, to, to keep them safe. You have to look at that, isn't it? Question why that is happening. And then decide, actually, I've looked at everything else. I've looked at the paperwork. I've looked at the consultation. I am satisfied that due process, which is around mental capacity assessment and best interest decision, was followed because you're not the decision maker, but you want to tease out and test out and challenge, you know, the authority on that which this is happening. So in the case of COVID, this was not necessarily seen at the time, you know, as a big thing. Um, the court picked up on that because really, if you're covertly medicating someone, you're hiding it. You know, so there is an additional layer of restriction that applies there. You know, for, for you to hide it, it means that the person doesn't want it. You know, and if they don't want it, you're not having to effectively give it to them without their consent, you know, whether or not they lack capacity, you're hiding it. So the court effectively picked up on that and actually said, where you're doing a dose assessment, you've got to be clear, you know, clearly state, you know, if covert medication is actually being used as a restriction, which is what it is, you know, check out whether or not the relevant MC and best interest decision was applied because for you to then use that, you've got to make sure that whoever decides, you know, the GP or the mental health team or whoever has decided, you know, have actually provided justification for that. They've assessed the capacity of the person and they've actually consulted with the relevant people if the person lacks capacity to provide a justification as to why this should happen. Because remember, if somebody says no, there are two options there. You could either say, okay, they say no, we're not going to give them the medication 
because it might be too distressing to them. Even though we think they need it, we might say it is in their best interest not to put them through this level of distress just to give them this medication. And you decide not to act. And that's also a decision. But where you decide to act, you know, against their wishes and feelings, then you also have to provide a justification. But you can see that there are two options there. You've tested. One act, one don't act. So if you've acted, we also need to be sure that there is consultation with the relevant people. And key part there would be the relevant family member, the person with LPA, or an advocate, so that it doesn't look like, you know, you are the doctor, you are the clinician, you suddenly decided, I know what is best. I'm going to give it to them, bearing in mind, they don't want that. So BIAs now have to actually test out this, tease out this, you know, request for evidence as to whether or not this has been followed. And if it has, you need to make sure that that is included in your report, you know, so that people like us, when they're signing it, we can say, okay, there's covert medication. We can see that the right process has been followed. There is evidence that the person lacks capacity and the relevant people have been consulted. And then importantly, what the court has also said is that you need to add a condition that this is reviewed. And that's also key because the fact that, you know, you need to use the level of restraint today doesn't mean that that level of restraint would also be justifiable in three months time or in six months time. I think some, for, for practitioners, it can be helpful to think about case law as sort of um, providing a series of prompts or questions that this this other stuff, things like, you know, research and practice expertise can feed into. So and, and in particular, you know, when you do find more um, advanced practitioners, those with a, a sort of the advanced knowledge and understanding of the MCA or the Mental Health Act, you know, those from practice backgrounds like best interest assessors, like approved mental health professionals. Um, and this is what we do. So when we run the best interest assessors training, you know, one of the things that we set out by explaining to students is that actually this course leads them into a much more advanced level of understanding and knowledge around the MCA and obviously specific areas of the MCA like the dolls. Um, and part of that is having a more advanced knowledge and understanding of that case law. And that is things exactly like Tony's mentioned, cases like um, AJ, like AG with the, the COVID medication and obviously things like Cheshire West and all those cases. Um, and I think what that does and what practitioners are, are very good at doing often when they're doing those courses and certainly when they come out the other side of those courses and they go into practice is understanding case law as um, a series of prompts, basically, exactly like Tony's described when he was talking about the COVID medication case. So, you know, I, I know now what the case says. I know what, what, what AG or I know what AJ or I know what Cheshire West says. OK, <clears throat> so knowing what my role is then as a practitioner, either as a best interest assessor or an AMP or, or you know, um, whatever particular hat you have on, what does that mean that I have to do in my job here? So what questions do I need to be asking? And it's that that it's it's in that area in particular that all that other stuff feeds in. It's the input from the people with lived experience. It's the input from the individuals themselves that are the centre of these cases, or the, the centre of the, the, the case, the, the situation that you're working with at the moment. You know, it's the family members input. It's that research experience. It's that knowledge of what's being said in research about this. Um, so I think the case will kind of provides a bit of a prompt for all that other stuff to come in um, when it's implemented well by practitioners. Yeah, um, this is, it's in the, and I think that the, the, the human element of that, of course, which um, Kessler doesn't do, of course, is kind of the individual element of that, which research brings, you know. So one of the one of the areas I'm currently involved, because I'm also kind of currently involved in a doctorate, really. Um, and so what what we haven't seen, which is what I'm trying to explore is around, you know, um, the MCS we know is 
it's kind of sold as this lovely piece of legislation, decision-making, you know, tool to support decision-making. And this, yeah, by and large, that's what it is, really. But we also know that it, ha it has its flaws. I mean, that's all we've been discussing here. And if you look at the field of the M M M Mental Health Act, we also know the Mental Health Act is there to protect the person, and but also to protect the public. But, but, but when you then look at the numbers within the Mental Health Act, you know, even though we accept, you know, you know, that this is there for a good reason, there's always that question at the back of your mind is that why do we then have overrepresentation, for instance, of black and ethnic minorities, you know, within, you know, the mental health system, you know, um, why? I mean, that's the question that's been, uh, why if you, if you look at the number for inpatient detention under the Mental Health Act, you have many more, you know, black and minority ethnic, you know, service users there, you know, um, so, even though the caseless kind of law, legislation and caseless giving us the tool to act, but then you then begin to act, why then being disproportionately applied on a section of society? And that is what that individual element will have to give you. And you can only find out what is happening there when you look at individual cases. Of course, you know, qualitative, you know, um, research is very specific to that case. But what it does, it allows us to then begin to think, hang on a minute, we know what the law says here, but we may, may we, I probably need to take a little bit more time, you know, when I'm dealing with a particular section of society, because for whatever reason, you know, the way we apply this, you know, maybe we're missing something or there's something there we're not doing right. I may need to think a little bit, you know, out of the box here. Let's not also underestimate how important case law can be in helping practitioners to challenge, but also helping service users and people who are at the centre of this process to challenge certain decisions. That's where research can also come in to help us think about how we can actually improve. We talk about legal literacy, don't we, in this profession? Mm -hmm. um, you know, How can we then improve that legal literacy among the people who are at the very centre of these processes? Because that could be the most empowering tool for them, you know, um, and, and improving their legal literacy around case law can be really, really empowering for them. You know, there's a, and there's quite a few resources out there helping them to, to put that into practice in terms of, you know, templates and helping them to challenge perhaps decisions that have gone before. Um, so I think case law can be really important in that regard as well um, as a tool for challenge, both for practitioners, but also for people who are at, at the centre of these processes that we're talking about. Just before we kind of start to wrap up, um, just a few final thoughts from both of you on on how we can be sort of better informed around case law and 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 to apply it to our work in social care practice. And any final thoughts or tips you have like around that that you can share with with our listeners. I think one of the things that's important, and it's always an approach I take in terms of teaching, because I, I do teach um, both at Keele and, and beyond that, you know, um, mostly practitioners. So mostly those from, from qualified social work background or nursing backgrounds, or occupational therapy, counselling. And I think we mentioned earlier on in the conversation about how complex case law can be and how difficult sometimes actually getting to the bottom of what a piece of case, is, a piece of case law is saying can be. I think one of the things that helps, I mean, there's there's a wealth of resources out there and no research in practice. Obviously, we've got the case law and legal summaries. And one of the things that we do in those is try to really drill down more into the implications for practice of what that particular case means. Um, 
But I think one thing that's helpful, um, certainly from my experience working with practitioners, is for practitioners to be given an opportunity to see how that might actually apply in practice. So, you know, a big part of CPD, for example, in, in many of the professions that we might be talking about, is having an opportunity to not only keep up to date, but also thinking about how that keeping up to date can be implemented in practice. And having a space where practitioners can talk about these things and actually or not necessarily have a trial run, but actually get to grips with this case law in a situation that might be hypothetical or it might be, you know, it, it might be not an actual case that they're working. Very often practitioners can see the link between case law and, and you know, situations that they're encountering in practice anyway. Um, so very often when we're talking about the JB case, practitioners will always say to me, oh, that sounds exactly like a case that I've been working with or that sounds exactly like a situation that I've had at, at work. Um, but having a space to discuss amongst themselves as practitioners and also with those in managerial positions um, and their supervisors perhaps at work the implications of those cases for practice um, rather than just learning about them in the abstract thinking about actually how they might translate the that, that case and the, the findings of that case and what it's actually saying into practice is probably one of the most helpful things that practitioners can get and um, so there needs to be a way of making this some kind of you know mandatory you know whereby even if you say once every year as a bare minimum is it once every six months where there is you know people are encouraged to block out an hour or two you know where this is looked into whether you've done through some kind of you know scenarios or just you know discussion peer support you know what what i do where i am in, you know i mean amongst every other thing that i do you know when i do have time that we have some kind of mca forum and the idea of having that forum is to kind of again look at you know practice examples of how people can actually you know apply you know what we know um good quality mental capacity assessment should look like and discuss some of those issues and of course at the same time provide updates you know around that but this is kind of it's 15 maybe every quarter you know it's not purely you know um a case law legal update session it's kind of workshop you know that happens you know um the bia is also has a forum where we look at you know case law update for the bia is a lot more formalized because that's my you know um those people are having to kind of deal with the profession of liberty so it's quite important that they keep up with that uh but i think yeah there needs to be a system where you know, this is done in a more structured manner, really, for staff, you know. And I think somebody would need to kind of help them do that because if you leave it for them, amongst everything else, really, they'll put that at the back of what they would expect somebody else to know about that, you know, and potentially so that they can go to that person if they need a rise. I mean, what we know, especially in the field of MC, that MCA really is not, should not be seen as some kind of specialist area of practice. It's really, you know, a field of practice that anyone is able to apply and this is why the movement from those to lps some of the people who are happy about that is that it completely you know um demystifies the whole you know best interest those process and puts it back you know to frontline staff to actually say this is what you've always done this is what you expected to do we're going to help you you know create a great understanding but we know you can do that you know so do that you know don't expect this to be some kind of specialist knowledge you know and then finally, there was also a big resp responsibility on the part of managers as well. You know, some managers, again, managers are having to do a lot more now than before. They're also in the same boat of not being able to keep up with all that's happening. But there's probably more onus on the managers really to keep up with that because really where there is kind of lacking of knowledge within their staff, 
the only other person that can support that or that can challenge that or improve that to be the manager. But where the manager is also lacking in that area, it becomes quite tricky. I mean, some staff tend to come to me for a lot of complex cases, but there's no reason why, you know, some of those cases could not have gone, you know, to their managers before. So really, almost like a two-tier process, isn't it, where we target staff, but we also find a way to target manager to improve, you know, the knowledge, you know, or the up-to-dateness of managers around case law. Yeah, and I think it's about embedding case law, and you know, it's about it's about embedding case law just on a on a day to day basis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, through this, this is exactly what Tony's been saying. You know, and I think this is more present in some roles that you find in social care, particularly for best interest assessors and, and approved mental health professionals, because you know they have to be experts in that case law and it's part of their day-to-day practice yeah. going into care homes assessing whether someone's deprived of the liberty all that case law is swirling, swirling around in the minds and it's it's really at the forefront of what they're doing so it's a day-to-day thing for them i think um embedding it more broadly within this area of practice is perhaps a, a quite a big challenge and i think yeah. one of the things that i've always tried to do when for example drafting practice briefings for research in practice for example is put that case law in just embedding it with an explanation because it shows how it can be used it almost like um provides a tool as to how it can be used on a day-to-day basis for practitioners who are navigating situations and this is why obviously the other the, the other resources that you've got at, at uh, research in practice like the um, legal literacy change project that has got a whole suite of resources for practitioners that that in, in helping them to navigate case law and, for, and working out how it might be relevant to their practice that's why things like this are are so crucial. So um, practitioners aren't just doing this cold with that case, you know, like like Tony said, clicking onto a link and just bringing up a whole host of text of the case. Actually, what those types of things do, both the case law and legal summaries, the practice briefings, um, the uh, legal literacy change projects resources, is show practitioners how they can move from understanding the basics of what a case is saying into their practice and actually almost providing that translation into practice for them sort of like a, a tool for for translating that that piece of case law into practice but i think certainly embedding case law in that way and that's why those tools are so important embedding case law on a day-to-day basis in order to improve practitioner confidence and understanding of navigating case law and what it means and how why it's important um and i think like i say for some professionals uh, or for, for some perspectives in this particularly if you're an advanced practitioner like a, an approved mental health professional or, or a bia that's part and parcel of your day job anyway mm-hmm. but for practitioners who aren't or who are perhaps are newly qualified that's it can be quite daunting um to navigate the case law in that way and so i suppose my main thing would be don't be scared of the case law particularly for new and incoming professionals into this area is don't be scared of the case law because the case law is actually there to help you do your job better we've included the discussion points from our conversation today some reflective questions and the links to our case law and legal summaries for adults and children and families to the webpage. we aim to release summaries on a monthly basis if there are useful cases to highlight with key learning Don't forget that case law and legal summaries can be a good way to support your continuing professional development, meeting the Social Work England CPD standard for relating to keeping practice up to date. Case law and legal summaries can also support peer reflection. For example, you can discuss a recent judgment with a colleague and reflect on the way it will impact your practice or bring a legal summary to a team meeting for discussion. And this can be recorded as peer reflection. We hope this resource will support you in your practice and further develop your knowledge and skills around case law. Thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.